Today is the second sermon in a series of sermons that we are calling Money and the Kingdom of God. If you brought along a copy of the Bible, please turn to our Old Testament passage, Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. And notice in particular how the Ten Commandments start off, how how they begin. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. So just think about something that's so obvious, it's easy to run past it. When God starts the Ten Commandments, he starts them talking about the challenge of idols. And I think that when we read something like that, we accidentally think that idolatry is a problem for primitive people. We have an image in our mind of some kind of physical object and people bowing down to it or cutting themselves or whatever. And we think of ourselves as enlightened folk that of all the problems Americans struggle with, we don't have these kind of like cutting ceremonies, right? We don't have these actual objects that we're visiting these shrines. But when we think of it that way, we're missing one of the most important teachings of the Bible, and it's this. The fundamental human problem is not sin. The biggest challenge that you face, that I face, is not sin. The the biggest threat that we experience to flourishing, to being truly ourselves, to being fully human, our single greatest challenge As human beings, according to the story the Bible tells, it's not sin. The single biggest challenge that you and I face in life is the temptation to idolatry. That's why the Ten Commandments start there. The Ten Commandments start with the biggest issue, with the biggest threat. Now, look. Sin is definitely a problem. If anybody's ever sinned against you, you know, right? If you've ever reflected on (laughs) the way your sins have impacted you and other people, you know. But the story the Bible tells us is that sin is the symptom and that underneath sin is something more basic, more fundamental, and that what is under sin in the Bible is idolatry. And so by imagining that idolatry is only about some primitive shrine with primitive people going to it and making some sort of gift, that is a sleight of hand trick that lets us off the hook. It's it's a kind of self-protecting belief. But the Bible, it says to us, morality is important. But morality is not the larger story that the Bible focuses on. What the Bible focuses on is different than rules. Rules are important. 
But this would be like saying that in your house, rules are the most important thing. What kind of jerk would you be if you made rules the most important thing in your household? It's not the most important thing in God's household. Look at it this way. Think about the story the Bible tells. The Bible tells a story that says this. In the beginning, God created. He created the expanse of the sky and the sea and the land. And then after he created these expanses, he began to fill those expanses, right? He filled all these empty spaces up with light and with life. So he makes these expanses and then he puts into them sun and stars, and fish, and birds, and trees, and animals. And then finally, at the climax of it all, God creates humans in his image in order to carry on the work he's been doing, in order to fill all things with his glory and with his royal representatives. This is the mission of God in a nutshell, to fill all things with his, with his glory through his royal representatives. So we humans were created by God with responsibility and authority within creation, over creation. And then what happens? You get to Genesis chapter three and we humans turn this kind of responsibility we've given and this authority we've been given, we turn it upside down. We give our hearts and our allegiance and our worship to forces and powers within creation itself. And the name for doing that, the name for that move is idolatry. And the result of that move is slavery and death. That's the story the Bible tells. The Ten Commandments Begin at the beginning, idolatry, relating to any object the way you should only relate to God, relating, relating to any relationship, to any force, to anything in a way that you should only be, be relating to God. This is the fundamental human problem. This is the ur-temptation. Now, of all the idols, of all the things in this world that we're tempted to do that with, over and over and over, the Bible says money is the trickiest. Money is the sneakiest. Money is the most seductive thing in the world that, that when you get near it, if you're not careful, you will relate to it in a way that it becomes an idol. For example, if you have a copy of the Bible, turn to our gospel passage, Matthew chapter 6. Notice how Jesus puts his finger on this issue. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Nobody can serve two masters. You will either hate the first and love the second, or be devoted to the first and despise the second. You cannot serve God in money. Now, remember, idols are dangerous things. Idols are things that are okay. But when we give our, 
when we give our love to them, when they win our allegiance, when we begin to relate to them in a twisted kind of way, these things get power and they become forces in the world. And when they do that, they are violent. They are dangerous. They steal our love and trust and service from the good and powerful and wise and loving and kind and great God who created us. And Jesus taught us that money has a peculiar power to capture us and put us in bondage. That's why in passages like Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus warned his followers against all kinds of greed. Because there's a lot of different kinds of greed. There's greed that people without money have. There's greed that people with money have. There's greed that people who don't want to spend their money, they just want to build it up have. And then there's greed that people who want to get money so they can have power have. There's all different kinds of greed. And Jesus warns his followers, you got to watch out for all of them. And over and over in his teachings, he talks about money and he talks about greed. Think about some of the parables he told. Think about the parable of the farmer destroyed in the midst of his prosperity because he hoarded wealth and failed to be rich toward God. Or think about the story of the rich man sent to hell for his failure to let go of his wealth for the sake of his neighbor. Or think about the story of eternal judgment declared based on your willingness to share with those in need. I mean, and I could just keep going, but over and over and over, these passages of scripture all point in the same direction. Money wants worship. It wants it. And you got to be on the watch out for it. And when you think that idolatry only exists in other civilizations, not as educated as ours, you stop looking out for it. It's so funny to me. I cannot tell you. I, I've been a, a pastor, a priest for 30 years. I, I couldn't tell you how many people have come to me because of some sinful behavior in their sexual life. But I can count on one hand how many people have come to me and asked me about greed. And the irony here is we live in America. <laughs> why don't we, why, why isn't my door beat down with people saying, I, I don't know how to do this. I'm getting run over by greed. Because we let ourselves off the hook, there's something about greed and there's something about money that blinds us. Listen, listen to the price we pay for it. The price we pay for not attending to our relationship to money. Listen to what our Lord says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. This was our New Testament reading. People who want to be rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and dangerous lusts which drown people in devastation and destruction. Now, do you believe that? Do you really believe that wanting to get rich causes destruction? According to one study of religion and economic values in the United States, almost three quarters of the U.S. labor force believes that greed is sin. Uh, just under 75% believe that greed is sin. But only one-tenth think it's wrong to like money. 
and to want money. To want a lot of money. Three quarters believe greed is sin. Less than one-tenth think it's wrong to want a lot of money. Why is that? Why do we say, yeah, greed is a sin, but it's okay to want a lot of money. And more than three quarters think having a beautiful home, a new car, and other nice things is very important, quote. And yet God teaches us in scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, people who want to be rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and dangerous lusts which drown people in devastation and destruction. And then in verse 10, God tells us the love of money is, is a root of all kinds of evil that has caused some people to wander from the faith and impel themselves painfully with many griefs. Notice Wealth is not inherently bad, and poverty is not inherently good. It's not about the amount of money or the lack of money. Both of those situations, the, the issue is how do you think about money? How do you feel about money? How do you relate to money? The problem is loving money. It is the love of money that wounds the worshiper, that woos us from the faith, that wells up into all sorts of evils. Money becomes our master if we don't master money. Our material possessions seduce us into trusting that they can give security for the future. The stuff, that stuff can fill up our lives with significance and joy and satisfaction. And over and over in the Bible, God tells us that when we give in to that temptation, when we worship money, it will maul us. Money becomes a spiritual power that will use us rather than the other way around. In one of the most horrific, awful passages in all of scripture, Jeremiah chapter three, verse 24, God tells us that our worship of idols not only consumes, quote, flocks and herds, but also sons and daughters. This is the cost of idolatry. It's child sacrifice. Whether it's in a fire to Molech or in neglect because of how much time you spend facing, racing after money. When we worship the idol of money, when our lives are oriented primarily toward earning, getting, keeping, we become deformed, reflecting not the image of Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth, but, but reflecting money, the God of me and mine. And we become increasingly committed to a lifestyle of abundance of possessions. And this way of living falls short of the life Jesus invites us to experience. All right, let's pause for just a moment and think about the ground I've just covered. I've just said three things. Number one, idolatry is the fundamental human problem. Number two, out of all the idols in our world, money is one of the most powerful, most seductive, and most tricky. And number three, the cost of making an idol out of money is terrible. Now, that's the ground we've covered. Now comes the hardest part of the sermon. You see, what we need to do now is to find a way of seeing if we're in the grip of the idol of money. We need a way to discern 
no matter what's sitting in our bank accounts right now, no matter what our house looks like, we need a way to discern if money has seduced us and tricked us. Remember, money wants worship. And every bit of ourselves we give to our stuff, we snatch away from the true king. And one of the powers of idols is that they blind their worshipers so that they can't see that they're in the grip of the idol. So how do we unmask mammon to see if we are in its grip? There's a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller who's written a wonderful book. The title of it is Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope that Matters. And in this book, he lays out what he sees coming out of Scripture as three ways to identify idols in our own lives. He says, look at your time, look at your spending habits, and look at your emotions. For example, first of all, the time test. In the words of Archbishop William Temple, your religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts flow to effortlessly when nothing else is demanding your attention. What do you daydream about when you have the luxury of not having to think about anything? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? Do you develop potential scenarios for career advancement or something you can buy like a dream house, a new kitchen, a new car, a vacation? Lovers of money are those who find themselves daydreaming and fantasizing about new ways to make money and new possessions to buy and looking with jealousy on those who have things that they wish they had. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy without even a second thought. All right, a second test is your spending patterns. A way to discern your heart's true love is to look at how you spend your money. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Your money float, not only do your thoughts, but your money flows effortlessly toward your heart's greatest love. In fact, the mark of an idol is you spend too much money on it. Whether you're in a primitive society going to some shrine and putting goods up there to be burned up, or in a more sophisticated, enlightened, modern way, you're just blowing out Amazon or your credit card or whatever else. Money money is one of the things, how you spend it. A third test to look to see if you are in the grip of, of the idol of money is to look at your uncontrollable emotions. Um, then Tim Keller has this great illustration. He says... Just, just like a fisherman who's looking for fish knows that where the water is roiling, we too can look for idols at the bottom of our most painful emotions, especially the emotions that never seem to lift and that drive us to do things that are wrong. If you're angry, ask, is there something under this that is so important to me? I've got to have it at all costs. 
Do the same thing with strong fear or despair or guilt. Ask yourself, am I so scared because something in my life is being threatened that I think is necessary? Greed is not only the love of money, it's also the excessive anxiety about money. If money is your God, it controls your worries. Your time, your spending, and your emotions. These are three rocks that you can look under to find the sneaky little idol called money running around in your life. Okay, so now what? (laughs) Well, now we need some good news, right? This feels pretty, uh, it feels like the person sitting next to you has a problem, doesn't it? And you're feeling bad for them. (laughs) And you're just thinking, oh man, poor poor them. Aubrey's really getting on to those people. Well, for them, here's some good news. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Paul teaches, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, offers the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked out in Christ Jesus, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things. Jesus is more powerful. Jesus has broken the power. If you're in in the grip of this idol... It's not a hopeless situation. It would be hopeless. I mean, imagine an American escaping greed. How can that be possible? It's possible because Jesus has broken the power of the idol money. The good news is that the creator God, through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus, has defeated the power of money. In the words of Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. As powerful as money is, as sneaky as it is, as, as strong as its grip is in our life, as tricky as it is to have gotten a hold of us and we didn't even want to be an idolater. The fact is Jesus is more powerful On the cross, Jesus was not just dying to deliver you and give you forgiveness. He was dying to break the power of the idols that enslave us. Jesus has conquered the powers of the world, and that includes money in his life and death and resurrection. He deposed money. He stripped it of its authority. That's the good news. And so how do we then draw down on the power of Jesus so that we can escape the clutches of this idol that is ravaging our society. Well, if you have a copy of the Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 6. Because Jesus tells us how we can access his power to deliver us from the idol of money. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 20. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, look, too often we hear this verse and we think Jesus is saying, 
Where your treasure is, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. In other words, we, we accidentally trade the words around in this verse, and we think Jesus is saying that what we do with our money and our resources indicates where our heart is. You want to know where your heart is? Look at your checkbook. Now, that's true. I said that a little bit earlier. That's true, but it's not what this verse is really focusing on. He's not saying what you do with your money is a thermometer that measures your love. No, what he says here is what you do with your money is a thermostat. That's the good news. You can use money to break the power of money. What we do with our money doesn't so much reveal our heart. That's true. But the even greater truth is that what we do with our money changes our heart. In other words, it's not that your money follows your heart. Your heart will follow your money. That's the good, that's such good news. So in Matthew 6, 21, Jesus stands in front of us like a doctor telling us, okay, here's the bad news. You've got cancer. You're going to die. You're going to ruin your relationships. You're going to deny your community. You're going to do things that put you in danger of judgment. That's the problem. You've got cancer and it is eating you alive. But he also stands in front of us and says, but for this cancer, I got a cure. I've got a real cure for this one. According to Jesus, when we invest in God's kingdom, our hearts follow us out of the land of the idol into the kingdom of God. If we invest in earthly treasures, our hearts will be in earthly treasures. If we invest in heavenly treasures, our hearts will be in heaven. Giving to God's kingdom jams a spoke in the relentless wheel of greed and idolatry. Using our money to invest in God's kingdom casts down money from the throne of our hearts. When we release our grip on money, we free up our hearts for worship and our hands for work in God's kingdom. When we give to God in his kingdom, the spirit inhabits our generosity and works to reshape our heart, our soul, our character, our thoughts, our bodies into the image of God. And what does God look like? He's generous. He's kind. He's just love to the core of his being. He is selfless. He is so selfless that he would give his own son because of his love for you. And you can become like that. You can become that life-giving, that generous, that kind and joyful and patient. Through kingdom giving, God changes our hearts that are into the beautiful, kind, wise life and love. Now, exactly what kind of giving is that, right? What, okay, if that's the thing I need to do with my money, then exactly what does it mean to lay up treasures in heaven? In scripture, there is so much to talk about money. And so I'm going to summarize here at the end of my message three general ways of giving that come up throughout scripture that fall under this category of laying up treasures in heaven. First of all, you are laying up treasures in heaven when you give money to God. There's a whole group of commands in Scripture, stories and principles and teachings that describe a type of giving 
that God says you're actually giving to God. Proverbs chapter 19 verse 7 tells us that a gift to the poor is a loan to God. Proverbs 25 verse 40 tells us that generosity to the least of these is giving to Jesus. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 through 12 tells us that when we tithe, we give to God. Deuteronomy chapter 26 verse 13 tells us that tithe is a sacred portion of our money that belongs to God. And our job with the tithe is to get it out of our bank account into the temple. So tithing, giving 10% of our money to the church and almsgiving. Giving to the poor. These are two specific ways that the Bible calls giving to God. And when we are looking to cast down the idol of money from our heart, when we are seeking ways to give that will deliver us from the idol of money, ways to give that will shape our hearts into good hearts, We should be thinking about giving to God himself. And he says, you give to him when you give tithe and alms. Number two, in the scriptures, another way of giving that that the scriptures describe as an investment, a treasure in heaven, is when our giving reflects the heart of heaven. When it reflects the heart of our king. Giving must conform to the heart of our king if it's going to turn our hearts to our king. And when we read the scriptures over and over, we see the kind of giving that reflects God's heart is giving that prioritizes the marginalized and mission. When you read the Bible and say, okay, if I'm going to learn from the king how to give, and you begin to look in all those places where we see God giving and what God prioritizes, we see that he prioritizes the marginalized and mission. So laying up treasure in heaven is going to flow in that direction. Third, a third type of giving in the Bible that the Bible puts under this rubric of laying up treasures in heaven. A third type of giving that shapes our heart into good hearts is when our giving has the dynamic of the cross in it. When it follows the way of the cross. Giving shapes our heart when it is cross-shaped giving. And by that, I mean two things. Number one, it cost. And number two, it creates community. That's cross-shaped giving. It cuts into our lives and it creates community. When giving costs us and creates community, it reflects the earth-shattering reality that Jesus suffered the horrors of the cross so that he might create a new family where he stands as the firstborn among many sons and daughters. So these are three practical ways that we can lay up treasures in heaven, that we can assault the idol in our heart that we can throw down from our lives, the greedy idol that will ravage us, and we can open our lives to the God who will make us full of life and a gift 
Number one, give directly to God, alms and tithes. Number two, give in ways that reflect the heart of God, the marginalized and mission. And number three, give in a way that follows the way of the cross, giving that costs and creates community. These are three ways of giving that can wrench our lives from this idol. Three ways of giving that can lead our hearts to reside in God's kingdom rather than in some idolatrous temple. If we want the power of Jesus to deliver us from slavery to money as an idol, we must learn to worship our king through our giving. Because our king said, where you put your treasure, your heart will follow it. Put your treasure in heaven, your heart will get to heaven. Put your treasure on the earth, your heart will be on the earth. So here are a few questions for all of us to wrap all of this up. What is something you can give up so that you can give more? Think, try to just think, maybe spend some time this week asking yourself that. What is something I can give up, even if it's a good thing, but so that I can give more? A second question, what is something you can give that will connect you more deeply to others or will help others more connect, deep, connect more deeply to each other? A third question, what is something you can fast from for the purpose of giving more? We spend some time today or soon this week in silence and stillness and then pray and ask Jesus, where can I begin? Believe that he is good. And that he wants good for you. And that he's better for you than the idol of money. And not only is he better for you than that, he, don't, he doesn't want to just condemn you in it. He wants to offer you the way out of it. And then pay attention to what's happening in your heart and what you hear from the Lord. And, and ask Jesus to replace the hidden greed of your life with the abundance of his kingdom. And think about what else in your community you might want. Who else in your community you might want to talk about it. Here's the deal. The idol of money requires transparency to escape it in the same way that AA has discovered people who want to get free from alcoholism, they have got to find somebody they can talk to about the fact that they're an alcoholic. One of the tricks of, of money as an idol in America is that it's conned us into believing that we shouldn't talk to anybody about our finances. Idols flourish in the dark. You have got to find somebody that you can open the books to. You know this. You know that secrecy is the breeding ground for cancer to metastasize. Find somebody. Who in your community can you talk to about growing into cross-shaped generosity? And then find a particular way you can practice it. Let's pray.